Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Co-hosts Dr. Reed Hayes of the Loss Prevention Research Council and Tom Meehan of Control Tech discuss a wide range of topics with industry experts, thought leaders, solution providers, and many more. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Be a leader in loss prevention by implementing integrated solutions that enhance safety, reduce shrink, and help to improve merchandising, operations, and customer service. Bosch Integrated Security and Communication Solutions spans Zones 1 through 4 in the LPRC's Zones of Influence, while enriching the customer experience and delivering valuable data to help increase retail profitability. Learn more by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. Today, we're joined by Wickland and Zalowski's very own Dave Thompson. Um, Dave, why don't you introduce yourself um, and maybe give everybody a, a quick background on uh, how you've uh, moved up the ranks and uh, and then currently what you're up to, if you would, please. Sure. Thanks, Reed. Thanks for having me. Um, this is my second time on the uh, the Crime Science Podcast, so you guys are doing doing some great work. So excited to be a part of this. I'm excited to represent you know both both WZ and uh, the Talk LP podcast that uh, is hosted with Amber Bradley and myself. And um, at, at WZ, as you mentioned, uh, moving up the ranks, I don't want to give you give myself too much credit. I think a lot of it was uh, probably to be in the right place at the right time and being surrounded by the the right people and and having the right mentors. So there's a lot of people I'm sure listening to your podcast that I know have had a significant impact on my my growth and development over here at, at WZ. But um, currently, I'm our Vice President of Operations and, and one of the three partners at Wickland or Zalowski. And uh, my, my current role outside of teaching our programs is really focused on day-to-day operations of the business. And of course, in our current climate is kind of evolving and innovating the way that we provide and deliver our training in a more remote virtual virtual environment. So I know the word innovation is not uh, not foreign to you guys over at LPRC. No, that's that's great background. Um, and I know that uh, you've made a couple visits in here to Gainesville, um, spent some time with us the first time we went and uh, visited with some of the criminology faculty and wanted one faculty member in particular that she uh, studies um, jury behavior, but also studies, interviews, interrogations, co- coercive uh, versus non. And um, and so you all had a, it seemed like a good and light discussion. Um, and maybe at first, let's kind of, if we can explore a little bit, um, and I don't know if I'd call it a passion, but how you're leveraging your experience and your expertise and your inquis- inquisitiveness in um, looking into the right and maybe not so right ways to get people to talk about things that they might have uh, witnessed or in, increasingly uh, maybe what they've done. Um, so, Dave, if you could kind of talk a little bit about what you look at, how you're looking at it, and um, particularly when it comes to coercion. Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. I think you did mention my visits down to uh, to UF. I got to be careful because I know I've got some Florida State people that are listening and UF people listening. So I'll, I'll stay away from comparing two beautiful campuses. Uh, but I do know some of the technology and some of the um, the innovative things you guys are doing at LPRC. I wish I had when I was in the field uh, conducting interviews and doing investigations. Pretty pretty neat things that are being put together out there. But from the the question you asked about, you know, coercion, and I would call it a passion of mine. I think it's been probably three or four years now uh, that 
really one of my my passions and one of my main projects personally and with WZ is on the in the world of wrongful convictions and false confessions. And at Wicklanderslowski, we've made uh, a lot of changes in our curriculum over the last few years to really focus on not not just to make sure we're providing good training on how to conduct interviews and interrogations, but also being aware of the fact that these these skills that we're training people on, if used the wrong way or if not used at all, uh, can easily result in some miscarriages of justice. And um, I had the chance to have uh, some involvement, at least supporting a Brendan Dassey from the Making a Murderer case and his legal team, and really from there have been focused on how do we how do we impact change? How do we lead change as thought leaders in an, an industry of interview and interrogation? So, meeting some of your faculty is, was was a great uh, part of that, and it's been really neat to collaborate with academics, uh, really at this point across the globe, on making sure that what we're what we're training avoids coercion um, and still gives investigators tools to get to the truth in, in any case. That's excellent. So, um, one thing as uh, I. I get on to, uh, via the University of Florida, I can get on, of course, um, as faculty to search all the academic databases out there. And in almost all journals that are digital, um, we have access to. And um, so I'll go on there and do keyword searches on, of course, robbery and burglary and shoplifting and uh, and other uh, relevant issues. Um, but because of you, I will also look up, you know, coercive interviews or interrogations and so on to kind of interrogate the literature around that and um, see where is the world and what, what research has been published on that area um, that is so important. Um, and, you know, at LPRC, we are dedicated first and foremost to safeguarding vulnerable people, um, in this case, typically the vict- crime victims. Um, because we know the the physical and, and the mental effects of even a property crime against somebody um, can last not only a lifetime, but sometimes gener- it can be multi-generational. But um, we don't pay enough attention to there are other victims, and those are people that are wrongfully accused. And, um, and so uh, and I find it interesting and, and beyond useful, you know, what you're trying to do. And all it's going to do, it seems, in my opinion, is the more research and the more expertise you, you all develop and help train uh, those that are out in the field conducting investigations, whether law enforcement or loss prevention, um, makes their investigations stronger and better, um, and also probably provides a lot of confidence to employees and managers and others in the field or corporate offices that the AP or LP team, in this case, or law enforcement, are really skilled investigators, including their interviews, um, and that they have the best interest at heart. Really, that's getting the truth. Yeah, and I, I think, Reed, I'm glad you brought up some of the, from a research standpoint, um, a lot of times when we talk to people in the private sector and we, we use a term like coercion or false confession, and the LP industry often doesn't maybe connect the dots as quickly. And they think, you know, that's something that happens in the criminal world. That's something that happens with a, a homicide case. And it, it does. We know it does. But in the private sector, uh, you know, people need to be aware of what are we saying in that interview room that gets an employee to who stole $3,000 to admit to $10,000 or the complainant of a sexual harassment case. Are we interviewing that person with, uh, you know, trauma informed interviewing experience and, and a strategy? And I think sometimes we got to think outside the box as interviewers of 
who, who else are we victimizing when this is done the, the wrong way? If we don't believe a victim um, or don't at least give the complainant a chance to tell their side of the story, you know, now we've got not only uh, a victim on that side, but potentially other victims that they're going to share that experience with, that interview with, that don't want to come forward. And you have a accused person who's going to continue to reoffend because you didn't address it. And if it's a theft or fraud case, of course, then the organization is going to continue to be victimized if you don't have the right person. So um, definitely an impact in both the public sector and in the private sector of, from the investigation through the interview of some of these errors that, that are common to happen. Excellent. What are, you know, if we could, I know we're kind of going off on one direction, but um, you mentioned the, the DASI situation or some of the other cases now that you've examined or worked on. What, are there some common threads or themes? Is it incompetence? Is it um, just uh, incompetence in interviewing? Is it um, lack of training? Uh, is, or is, and there's some intent in there? What are, what are some of the things that you all are uncovering and you think uh, and I think this is the most important that are probably fixable, trainable um, for field investigators. Yeah, I think that's a great question. That, that same question actually came up. Um, I was on a call with uh, some other attorneys that represent cases like this, and a similar question was brought up. And I think the most common denominator in the law enforcement world is most of the investigators are doing what they were trained to do. Um, unfortunately, their training might be a little dated. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, as we continue to embrace research and look at you know the, the appropriate way to have these conversations now, what was done five years ago, 10 years ago, two decades ago, uh, we've learned can, can cause some unnecessary risk. So I think the most common denominator is what's the quality of training? Who's conducting the training? Um, and we've seen organizations that you know try to kind of train a trainer and then eventually over time you get... This, this domino effect of uh, I train you, you train somebody else, they train somebody else, and it results in, in some uh, filtered down bad habits of, of what happened at the end result. So I think that's one of the, the main factors. When you look at false confessions more uh, scientifically and you look at the research behind it, the really the common causes of all of, all of these issues are uh, coercion, which could be threats or promises in some way, some implicit, some explicit. It could be uh, contamination, where the interviewer is actually revealing information about the, the crime that only the guilty person should know. Um, and lastly is misclassification. And it's, you know, how did, that, how did a potentially innocent person become a suspect in the first place? Did I interpret behavior the wrong way? Um, was there a bad eyewitness mis- you know, identification? Or were the forensic, forensic sciences wrong? So I think, frankly, there are, there are some um, players out there that, that do have bad intent, but I think that's few and far between. I think for the most part, it comes down to training and uh, you know, cognitive biases that investigators have. That's interesting. I remember years and years ago, <clears throat> all of our team, this is how old I am, uh, went through the Johnny Reed course. That was all that existed. And then, though, uh, when WZ split off, um, redid uh, their program, uh, we all went through, and this is at Ross Stores back in the day. Then we all went through Wickliner, Zalowski, one, WZ, one. And then later they had our, they had an advanced course, and we went back through that and then went through a sort of a touch-up course. Uh, and all of us got the audio tapes and the little brochure guide and I can remember, you know, my father's uh, medical practice. And I think you and I've talked about this had, uh, he said, I think, uh, you know, one of my team is 
stealing from me, you know? And I thought, well, he goes, what can you help me do? And I thought, wow, you've given me free medical care for my entire life. The least I can do is look into this. So um, I had to go find the WZ tapes, pull the brochure out, our little guidebook, <laughs> go through this thing. And it had this little laminated card for your wallet. I pulled that out, reread that, go to his office. I started asking him how he, you know, how did you get money? And you, you know, you have a patient list and that reconciles with uh, this list and that reconciles with a bank deposit and all this stuff and figured out, you know, wow, I think she's stealing copays and money from medical books that are sold at cost and you know, all kind of stuff. So we sit down in his office. I take everything off the wall and I'm, you know, doing all these things that we all learned and back then in the day and sit down with her. Well, then just as I'm starting to talk to her and she's starting to talk to me, he comes in sits down and stares at her, you know, while we're <laughs> just, he started to talk. It was one, it was one of those things where, and I'm sitting in the meantime, I was staring at my car where she can't see it, but, um, you know, it's critical, um, what you do and how you do it. I, I had another question that was, um, so we talk about interviewing to our best of our ability to get to the truth. In this case, a lot of times it is somewhat accusatory. Um, it's investigative but maybe we have other evidence and you're talking to a suspect. Um, but what about uh, law enforcement and retailers who are, do they use and leverage these more and more sophisticated techniques in interviewing witnesses? What does that look like more? Yeah, I think, I think that's a, uh, a good point. It's funny as you, uh, just to go back for a second, as you're talking about the, the tapes and the cassettes and I just glanced over at my wall here, I've kind of got the, a little bit of a WZ museum on my on my wall, and I've got some cassette tapes, an old laser disc, uh, VHS uh, tape, and it's kind of neat to see from 1982 to you know now tomorrow I'm going to be on a Zoom call teaching our program completely remotely. So it's just the technology has been been pretty pretty cool to see the innovation um, throughout. But yeah, I think one thing in the last few years, thankfully, that's become a much uh, more explored topic by interviewers is the same strategy that you might use to sit down with a suspect that you have direct evidence who's committed a, a crime of some sort is not the same interview structure you should be using on a, a witness or a complainant um, of, a, of a case. And, you know, for example, there's a, a couple of great documentaries out there, um, Unbelievable, which discusses a, a, serial, a serial rapist and really highlights the story of rape victims and how they, they were disbelieved by investigators because they used inappropriate interview methods, uh, made assumptions, had biases, and, and instead of going after information, were really trying to go after a confession. And so one of the methods that we focus on for witness interviews is either the cognitive interview, uh, the participatory method or a trauma-informed interview, where for a, at a high-level overview is basically letting the subject, maybe the witness in this case, let them tell the story versus the interviewer. And I think one of the most common issues interviewers have, uh, just like me, is being able to shut up and listen. I think we do a really good job of talking and sometimes need to do a better job of asking an open-ended question and letting somebody tell their story. Well, I think it's the not listening is can be a problem in in research when we interview um, people that are telling us I am an offender, and then we start talking about what that means. Um, but that's something that we have to learn and make sure that we're constantly checking ourselves to, as you say, let's you know, sit down, shut up, and listen. Right. Um, so critical. So that so I think that's interesting. Maybe. 
Um, can you just give a, you know, a minute description, maybe a little more, Dave? I thought it was the, the three different techniques that you talked about um, when, you, when we're talking about interviewing, particularly in this case, witnesses or complainants. Yeah, so um, I think I mentioned the cognitive, the participatory, and and trauma-informed interviewing. The participatory method is one, um, the easiest way for me to describe it, I guess, is if for anybody that's listening that has seen uh, the movie A Few Good Men, and you think about the, the famous cross-examination scene of You Can't Handle the Truth, um, that strategy where you have evidence and you're trying to remove any explanations or excuses for that evidence. So it could be an alibi. You know, it could be, for example, uh, an employee sent an inappropriate maybe message from their their computer, uh, their laptop, but potentially they're innocent because somebody else got on their computer and sent that message on their behalf. So the interview is designed to eliminate those, those exceptions. But more typically for a, a victim or a complainant um, or a witness where you're just trying to get you know, trigger their memory, allow them to tell their story. The cognitive interview is a structured interview approach um, developed by Dr. Fisher and, and Dr. Geiselman that has proven to increase somebody's memory recollection. I believe it's between 35 to 50 percent of an, an incident without altering the accuracy of that information, which is one of the things that we fall into as interviewers. You know, you might ask a leading question. Um, you know, for example, was that car going fast when it went through the red light? And when you ask a question leading like that, and I insert words like fast, you know, the witness, witness's memory may now be contaminated and they kind of remember the car going fast, whatever fast is defined by in their, in their memory. And then the other, the other interview mentioned that I mentioned was trauma informed interviewing, which, uh, might sound like the most complicated interview. And, and to me, it's actually the most simple. And it's really about the, the complainant themselves telling about their experience without really a structure to the interview. Uh, because when you experience trauma, whether you're a victim of a crime, maybe you've witnessed a crime, maybe even in, in our retail setting, you know, workplace violence or a customer came in and a shoplifter boosted the store or anything that was traumatic to an employee, their memory is is scattered. They don't remember things in a linear fashion. So instead of asking, you know, tell me from start to finish what happened, it's more about tell me about the experience, you know, tell me about what you remember the most and, and allowing the subject to put themselves back in that scene and start to draw out the memory as it comes to them versus the interviewer leading them down that path. So those are really the three different strategies for those cases that would probably be relative to the the subject and then the level of evidence that you would have. Great feedback. I, I was going to ask Dave, another, another situation, you know, mostly we're talking about a past event, ex post facto, something's happened, <clears throat> we're trying to understand it, uh, what happened, who was involved, how extensive, um, things like that. Maybe we're even trying to ask questions around what can we do to get better. That's the main area where we come in uh, with our research, for instance. But what about an imminent event? And, and of course, terrorism pops to mind the clock's ticking, this person sitting in front of me, we strongly believe, knows what's going to happen and where um, and when. So um, any thoughts on that? I don't know if we want to go too controversial here, but I mean, it's just the, the clock's ticking, life is at stake, you know, versus um, we're really trying to understand and put things right. I think it's a. I think it's a great question. I think my the first thing that pops to my head um, is still stick to the science. 
Um, and, and what we've seen in a great book uh, for people that I recommend is, is called Unjustifiable Means. And it was written by Mark Fallon, who's a former NCIS uh, special agent. And he, he played an integral role in or courageous role really himself and Colonel Stephen Kleinman and, and others uh, to try to remove these enhanced interrogation techniques, also known as torture, in these types of settings. And so back to your question, when you say, you know, the threat is imminent, how do we get the truth out of somebody or maybe prevent something major disastrous from happening? What happens is an interviewer feels this this urgent need to get to the truth and and rightly so because they want to try to protect protect the you know the loss of life unfortunately what happens is when we are in that state people are resorting to techniques and measures that are only producing false information and you know increasing resistance or you know if you look at what uh what we did from a torture now we as in wz we as in the united states did from a torture standpoint they went after this strategy called learned helplessness, which it, it pretty dis- disgusting and some, uh, my, my personal opinion, some inappropriate measures to try to get to the truth. And what, what they found is using those types of techniques actually resulted in either, either no, no new information or false and misleading information, which then, as you can imagine, only makes your situation worse. So I think my, the easiest answer to a question like that is still stick to the science understand what I do or say in that room that will cause increased resistance from somebody. Um, the information they have might seem more uh, important or high risk to us as the interviewer, but we still need to understand what is the reason this person doesn't want to talk to me? Um, what are some of the things I can do to give them the opportunity to talk and save face? And then lastly, I think a confession should not, should not be the goal of an interview. And even not just from an ethical standpoint, but strategically in these cases, you know, I'm not necessarily looking for an, an I did it or a name. If there's any information, actionable, reliable information that we can get that we can then act on, that could have the same, if not a better effect than trying to go after a confession. So I think it's really identify the goal of that conversation. Uh, what, do, what do we need to find out here? And then how can we go investigate it further versus resorting to maybe what might seem like a quicker resolution. Yeah, really interesting. And, 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 you know, what springs to mind, of course, in the case of, say, terrorism or enhanced techniques, um, as they're described, is uh, you stick with the science. The science is a little difficult um, if we, you know, we couldn't, for instance, conduct a randomized controlled experiment or trial. <laughs> um, you, know, you could imagine because no no institutional review board or IRB, IRB2 here, human subjects uh, research would allow us to, right. to do that, you know. Um, but uh, I thought that, um, you know, another part of it is that's interesting is, is I know like with our team, it's really the opposite and that we are trying to get to the truth, but we're telling them part of the truth that we do not want to hear is you doing something at a specific place and time. You know, you can tell us about an event, but we don't want you to tell us where it was or when it was. Right. Uh, we want to know if somebody was with you, but we do not want to know who was with you um, and things like that. So um, because we can't, any research, as you know, cannot result, has to be consensual right. uh, based on in, in, it's informed and it's consensual and cannot result in this subject or participants harm. So um, but it's a unique before I was on the other side of the table now for the last 
you know, 25 years being on the researcher's side. We're like, no, I don't want to hear about this. Now, if something imminent came up, we can get exemptions and say, hey, right. uh, you know, guess what? This, this is a murder for hire and this is getting ready to happen or something serious like that. Right. And I, I do think from a research standpoint, um, now there's at least a lot of data out there on the lack of results that were had from the, the methods that were used um, at a minimum. And, and I do know, you know, we've, without getting into too much detail, we've partnered um, with some different companies that are leveraging some incredible technology um, to help identify things, not necessarily deception, but to identify if memories are present or not present um, in a subject relative to some of these sensitive interviews. So there's, there's some neat stuff out there that the academic community partnering with practitioners has, has developed that I think we'll see more and more over the next few years. That's That's interesting too. Um, let me ask you this, Dave. Um, have you all ever encountered, do you even train for, um, but in particular, have you encountered an interview E a subject, maybe a target in investigation, um, that has prepared for the interview themselves, maybe yeah, via Google. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think um, that's that's probably going to happen more and more. I think you know, back when I was in the field, it was less of preparing for the interview and more of you know, well, I've heard how this goes, or a friend of mine's been interviewed, and they had a kind of a general knowledge of it. And as as we've progressed, um, you know, the last few years even something like going on on Reddit or Google or whatever else. And there's a lot of threads out there, just like you've seen with, you know, shoplifting, how to, how to take an ink tag off. And you can look on, on YouTube. We've seen a lot of those types of, I guess, suggestions or guidelines of how to prepare uh, for an interview. And I think most recently, uh, and there's a, there's a, a student that I've, I've, uh, listen to talk about one of their thesis that they're putting together for this year. And it's on the impact of Netflix documentaries on the perception of, of interviews and interrogations. And what's interesting is now you've got a lot of subjects of interviews that have seen a lot of these documentaries that highlight improper interview techniques. Um, they could at any time obviously get brought up during the conversation, you know, you're just using what they used in this documentary or whatever on me. So, um, I think if investigators haven't experienced it yet, it's something to be, to be prepared for. Uh, but yeah, we, we talk about that. We also, if you think about it, in the same mindset, we train a lot of internal affairs departments for our law, our law enforcement agencies, um, office of inspector general who does, you know, some internal investigations, so they're interviewing people who've been trained on how to interview. And so we do get a little bit more in-depth on some of those, those techniques and strategies on what obstacles to be aware of in those situations. Well, another question along those lines, I, and again, we all have faulty memories or very selective memories. Uh, I think it's the way we're, we're wired uh, since different bits of a memory are stored in different areas. But um, I, I almost, re- I believe I recall uh, a WZ executive uh, many years ago, telling me they were in a situation where they had to interview a suspect who was a law enforcement investigator who got in very serious trouble and had been through more than one interview and interrogation training course themselves. So now we're taking the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my re- recollection, the person was successful in getting uh, to the bottom of the situation. And in this case, involved the confession. Um, any thoughts around that, Dave? Uh, a trained interviewer being interviewed. 
Yeah, I think um, I think two different things here. The the first is, and anybody uh, hopefully listening to your to the the podcast here are investigators in some capacity. They're investigators or they're solution providers or they've been they've been on the I'll say the good side of of the law for these types of conversations. And if you ever think about, hey, if I'm ever interviewed, here's how I would respond. And we kind of, I think, have this. Um, maybe fictitious idea of what that would look like or feel like. But I think if you put yourself in the other perspective where you have done something wrong and the person sitting you down has knowledge of what you did wrong and expresses that to you and gives the opportunity to tell your side of the story, I I think it's a different perspective. So um, when we get that question a lot in the class as, you know, how would you handle interviewing an interviewer? It's, it's one thing to look at it from the outside, but I think once you're in that seat, you know, the, the fear of being caught is obviously escalated and the, in, the incentive to be able to tell your story is also uh, escalated. So I think that's, that's one piece. And then the second part to that is, you know, even if, if somebody at WZ, for example, if let's say I did something stupid, right? I, I went down to University of Gainesville and I'm, or University of Florida in Gainesville and I'm touring around the campus and I ended up going to a, a local bar and I did something silly and I get thrown out of the bar. Maybe somebody here, maybe Dave Zalowski has to interview me. He's probably not going to sit down and go through the WZ method and go through the 18 steps. Um, at the end of the day, he's going to want to establish credibility that he knows what happened um, based off the investigation and then give me the opportunity to tell my story. And I think as long as those two concepts are delivered, that's that that's going to be your best guide to success in the interview. But ultimately, if you do a thorough investigation, it doesn't matter if the person cooperates or not, is you're giving them the chance to provide their side of the story. And now you can go either corroborate or disprove whatever they, they told you to close out your case. And that's, that's, I think, why the technology and the things that you guys are doing at LPRC are, are so impactful for interviews, that if, if you have a thorough investigation and substantial evidence it makes that confession so much less important, which really changes the whole landscape of what we're, what we're talking about. Yeah. And even the, those are my best recollections is, you know, we were thoroughly trained. Dave Whitney, the VP at Ross was a pretty incredible person. Um, And uh, so when we went to those interviews, I mean, we, we may have had some props, if you will, but um, we really didn't go into an interview situation until okay, I know this is the person that did it. I know how they did it. Um, I may want to find out a little more about what else they did or who else they did it with. Um, <clears throat> but um, no, a great, a great point. What about, um, and the, you know, let's think about this polygraphs. And, and before we go, um, when we're doing research now, we have access to a shimmer. We, ha- we have one for the team that measures GSR, galvanic skin response, you know, emotion, arousal, if you will. Um, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of scientific evidence that that uh, emotive response um, correlates with others or helps you validate. We don't, you would never go just on that. Uh, but if they're looking using our eye trackers and they're spending more time here than there, they're telling us this and their emotion, uh, they, we see a spike at the same time. These things are happening at the same time. You've got your question and then you see these responses. In this case, we're saying, hey, which option would you be more likely to notice or recognize or respond to, of course, seek it fear. Um, but what are your thoughts on technology and interviewing? Um, I think 
any technology that that can support obviously getting to the truth is worth worth exploring i think as long as it's used you you had a phrase there and i forget exactly how you said it but i i liked it and it was basically this is a you're not going to go just off of that and even you know the polygraph when really in its heyday was designed to be a, a tool it shouldn't have been an, an end-all be-all and i think a lot of the technology that's that's grown from the polygraph and really getting away from deception detection uh, but there's some technology out there that measures uh, the dilation of pupils and and where your eye your eye your gaze aversion and there's some other technology I mentioned earlier that's looking more for whether memory is present or not um, any of this technology the risk in my opinion that exists is if an investigator uh, and it's hard to mitigate but if an investigator develop, develops a bias because somebody triggered or failed some type of test that was you know whether it was technology or an interview test um, is using that as a guide of maybe where to explore further, but not as a determination of, you know, truth versus deception or innocence versus guilt. And, you know, I, I think a, a very simple example of that is looking at a victim of maybe a sexual assault or a sexual harassment case. Um, and I mentioned the documentary earlier or the, the film from on Netflix, Unbelievable. There's also a book for those, those that like to want to read it instead. The book, um, it's titled A False Report, A True Story of Rape in America. And the victim is asked questions like, what do you think should happen to the accused? And it's kind of gone through this test. The victim fails the test, essentially, which creates a bias in the investigator's head that the victim must be lying. Not recognizing that instead of looking for truth and deception, there's other reasons people might display anxiety or fear unrelated to uh, being deceptive or guilty. So... The long answer to your question, or the short answer, I guess, is uh, technology is a, a great tool as long as it's used uh, appropriately and doesn't create further biases in the investigation. Yeah, and we use, I mean, the term really is triangulation, right? We're triangulating. Uh, in this case, we're also in a, in a good or maybe an easier place because we're going to, uh, we're trying to understand what stimuli uh, might get a response that we're looking for. Wow, I see that camera or I don't see the camera. I recognize that camera or I don't, or I misrecognize that. And then finally, I, I respond to that. I, I understand why that's there. Um, and I feel like there's no risk to me. Right. Uh, nobody's watching or assist. Or no, that puts, I feel at risk that I might get caught stealing. So I'm now, I'm deterred. So um, okay. yeah, so we're going to triangulate what they're saying what their eyes are telling us. Do they really look, do they look at that compared to other things? Right. Um, and then finally, what's, you know, what's the arousal level on the GS with GSR readings and do those all correlate with each other, you know, stimulus. And then the, there you go. The response from all three measures are, you know, directionally uh, similar. Um, but we're also going to combine their responses with 40 to 400 other people's right. responses yeah so right. and, and the outcome yeah. is safety but it's not risk to them yeah right and i think that's important as being as you know obviously in science is being able to replicate is important and um some of the the technology that's out there in the interview world there's there's a human element to it which adds a variable that makes makes it difficult so i mean there's polygraphers out there you know the, the very the top percentage that use it in a very efficient way 
um, that helps investigators, you know, determine what areas to explore further or not. Uh, but again, there's there's a risk to it being used the wrong way. One of the the tools, not from a technology standpoint, but from as we're talking about kind of deception detection, is an approach called the verify uh, verifiable fact approach, where you're really looking at um, how much how many verifiable details is a subject providing for you uh, after a series of instructions. And so there's a ton of research for people that are out there like yourself that have those keywords you're always looking for, you know, looking up any type of deception detection. There's, there's a lot of research debunking some of the things that people grew up on, on how to tell, how to catch a liar. Um, But also some, some more interesting ways on how to increase somebody's cognitive load, um, how to you know, have a greater disparity between truth and deception, and how to explore that the most appropriate way. Very good. And, um, you know, just a really good insight. What about, now let's switch, let's switch gears here. Here we are in the middle of a crisis. I'm hoping that a lot of the discussion that you and I have just been having, Dave, is uh, you know, timeless, for lack of a better word. But right. now let's focus in on this place and time that uh, during this pandemic... Um, and you know, I'm not sure, but it, my, my perception is that you all, um, certainly perfected, if not, uh, rolled out these remote interviews, interviews, um, but also the systematic way that they're done so that, um, obviously very practical because we all know, uh, uh, a regional or a district person may be covering stores across multiple States. And that's right now, nobody's traveling a whole lot, but, uh, back then, it was even difficult to cover that. So, hey, let's be efficient and let's collect evidence via POS and other data, do remote interviews, and then now we'll do a remote um, investigative interview with a, who we believe is a, is the suspect. Um, tell us a little bit about that. We don't want to go into your course content, of course, but you know what's that look like? And it's got to be more critical and important, you know, now than ever. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's a great point to talk about. We do have a, a ton of um, free resources out there too. So if we don't cover it here, but there's we've got several video tips and I just pushed out an article, uh, Wayne Hoover and I, maybe two or three weeks ago that goes really detailed into some of these tips. So if people need more information, I can, I can also share it with you guys so you have it. But I think, first of all, because of the situation we're in, so just ignoring just the fact that it's a remote interview, but the priority is, you know, the mental mental wellness of our teams, not only our interviewers, but the subjects and the witnesses we're interviewing, uh, is having increased empathy, uh, more awareness of the of the day to day situation, and the emotional stability of who you're talking to. You know, making sure we're spending more time developing rapport in a remote interview, especially in a situation like this, than you might in a face to face interview, um, and really being a human first and an investigator second, I think is just some of the key things as we're, as we're, we're kind of struggling through this, this unique situation together. But overall, I mean, there's a lot of things to to talk about when it, when you think about remote interviewing Um, for me, the most difficult part is the logistics of, you know, if I have somebody that wrote me a statement, for example, how do I secure and preserve that, that new evidence? Who am I relying on as a partner in the field that's managing those logistics. If um, I'm talking to an employee who may end up maybe terminated or even prosecuted at the end of this conversation, again, who can I rely on as a partner in the local field to communicate with law enforcement or to handle the disposition of the case? Um, so some of those things, you know, the room setup, the making sure everybody feels safe 
during the conversation. Um, I think the remote interview is going to put a little bit more responsibility on the preparation piece of the entire the entire process to make sure all those those T's are crossed and those those I's are dotted. Um, a couple other takeaways. I know you know from an investigation standpoint. We're relying a lot more right now on, which is great, a lot of technology out there from exception reporting systems to surveillance video to anonymous tips or hotline calls from our stores. And as an investigator, typically in a, in a face-to-face, when you're able to go visit a location and go you know, look at the video yourself, if you have to go into a store or go talk to witnesses, you have a more thorough investigation. And sometimes these remote interviews are being done a little more reactively without as much time being invested in the investigation. So it's, it's very easy to pick up the phone and have a bias because your store manager swears they saw the employee put cash in their pocket and you didn't double check. And so I think having that, that checks and balances in your head that just because this is over the phone doesn't mean I'm going to take any shortcuts. Uh, so still doing, doing a thorough, thorough investigation. So there's a lot of logistics, I think, that go into that, the remote interview, keeping people engaged on uh, the conversation. I mean, right now, I think I'm having Zoom fatigue myself. I've been on so many video calls the last the last few weeks. So uh, it's easy to kind of drift off as the listener. So making sure as the interviewer, you know, these are not monologues that we're turning these into more of a dialogue and using engagement techniques and keeping the subject involved in the conversation uh, is obviously important as well for these types of interviews. That's great. Now, can you tell me a little bit, Dave, about the CFI program? What is that? How does that work? How do people get involved in it? Yeah, so um, most, well, all of the information is on uh, the website certifiedinterviewer.com. The CFI designation is really for people who are passionate about interviewing or interrogation within within their career field. And it could be you know, a lot of people have a misconception that it's only for the loss prevention folks, but we've got CFIs ranging from human resources, loss prevention, audit, compliance, security, law enforcement, military, you know, and, and some of our, our government agencies. And the CFI was designed to create a standard uh, out there and a measurement of knowledge of interview and interrogation. Uh, a lot of people that go through the WZ class they they walk out with a certificate and they feel like they're certified. And the WZ program, at least the level one program, you know, pr- provides skills or at least knowledge for the skills to go out and conduct uh, a couple different interview methods. But the CFI is a exam that will test people on a, a comprehensive uh, knowledge set of interviews well outside the scope of just WZ. So, you know, we're talking about uh, case laws that might impact a patrol officer conducting an interview or a loss prevention person in a in a store, retail store. Uh, behavioral interviewing, candidate interviewing, uh, multiple different techniques are in the CFI. And then, you know, one of the, the other benefits of the CFI, just like any certification, is there's a commitment to continued education uh, credits to maintain your designation. And I think what's important there for any of the designations out there in any field is when you have these mandates of CEUs, it forces the the person who's earned that designation to stay current um, and stay fresh and to continue to be elite in their field of whatever it could be in this case, interview and interrogation. So uh, for people that are actually interested in the CFI, there, there is an exam you have to take. The, the best way to prepare for that is we're offering a few different options. Um, you could take an online course, which is kind of a self-paced 
uh, program to prep, prepare for the exam. Um, the other option is we typically would host a two-day class where you could travel to a local city and you have one of our instructors kind of walk you through a prep. Um, but in our current climate, we're now offering that virtually. So um, I know Wayne Hoover's done one a couple of weeks ago. He's got another one coming up where he's actually hosting a two-day prep preparation class uh, via Zoom for the CFI CFI exam, which is pretty pretty neat. So um, definitely a, a designation that's that's worth pursuing for anybody that wants to, you know, demonstrate and have credentials to show they're elite in that specific field. What are some other courses that uh, WZ offers, Dave, um, in addition to the uh, CFI prep course? And how do you, how do you get, how do you get a hold of you all? Yeah. So okay. simplest thing, because Wickmaner Zalowski is too difficult to, to spell. We'll keep it simple. So our website is just w-z.com. Um, and right now on there, because we understand, you know, especially our retail partners are, we've got, you know, a, a large group of, of listeners out there that are still at work and working in some stressful situations. And we, we appreciate them being out there. And then we've got another group that is dealing with the, the struggling economy and furloughs. And so we wanted to try to do what was best for all of our clients. So um, one thing that we've done is tried to move as much as possible into a remote distance learning environment. So we've got a series of, you know, webinar topics, for example, that we've created new ones on rapport, uh, conflict resolution and de-escalation, false confessions, the cognitive interview we mentioned earlier, um, telephone interviewing, which we've talked about. So all of these are available remotely um, through, through a WebEx, uh, through Zoom. We've also got our regular level, level one and our advanced class that people have, you know, been coming to for decades um, is, is even more new and improved that we're now hosting completely remotely. I've hosted a few of those already. I've got another class tomorrow. Um, and then as we start to hit, get back into hopefully normal business, our HR partners, uh, a class that's probably been one of our most on-demand programs the last few years is a class designed for those witness interviews, uh, the accused person of sexual harassment or workplace violence, some of the outside of the box cases that either LP is getting tapped into um, or our HR partners rely on that training. And then the last thing I'll mention from a course offering that I think is especially relevant in this situation is a program uh, we launched about two years ago called The Link. And it's actually a simulated interview program. Reed, I'm sure when you first learned how to interview, you probably went to a course and then you were told, all right, good luck, go out and talk to somebody and we'll see how it goes. And what we've done is to try to mitigate that risk and make people feel more confident with their skills is actually created a, um, in partnership with a, a technology company, Submersion, created a product that you can actually interview a subject on the computer um, based off of what you say. There's a logic tree built behind it. So he might respond differently to you and you get immediate feedback and you can practice the method over and over again. So really some cool stuff. Um, hopefully a lot to offer for people out there. For I know right now for any of our distance learning options, we're also giving away a free uh, year membership to the International Association of Interviewers during this time just to give people more education while they're, while they're maybe stuck at home. So everything's on the website or they can always reach out to me directly. That sounds good. And I think one last thing, uh, tell us, take a minute if you would, uh, Dave, and tell us about Talk LP, the podcast. Yeah. So Talk LP, um, which can be found easily on TalkLP.com. On Twitter, it's at Let's Talk LP. And, and I think, you know, Reed, I appreciate us doing this, doing this together. Um, what LPRC and the, the Crime Science podcast uh, provide some 
incredible content. I know I mentioned earlier, I've been on here now, now a couple of times, um, talk LP, we've kind of just taken more of a, um, I guess a lighthearted, uh, approach and we've had some guests on, uh, several, you know, high, high ranking partners at some different organizations just to kind of give a lot of their career background. Um, you know, recently we had Stephen Antoine, uh, from Yum Brands. We've had David Johnston from, from Duncan, we've had Kerry Jones. We've had a lot of people in the industry that are, um, ready and, and excited to share kind of their story of how they grew up in the LP world and maybe some leadership advice out there. So uh, I think, you know, Talk LP and, and what you guys are doing at, with with Crime Science, I think the two together really provide a wide scope of uh, information and knowledge base for the industry out there. So um, I think we'll, we'll, sh- we'll obviously share this as well to, to promote both, both brands. And we're excited to, to have a partnership like this of having some more of these, these podcasts we can do together. No, I love it. And I guarantee there are some, there are quite a few good topics that are going to lend themselves to that. Um, and I appreciate you coming into Gainesville the other day, right before this, this thing hit fortunately. Um, but we look forward to working further. We're excited that WZ um, is, uh, and your team, you all, the team there are members of the LPRC community. Um, we're looking forward to that and um, to you and your loved ones and the team um, and all the professionals that you and I know out there. Stay safe. Um, and thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. I appreciate it, Dave. Absolutely. Thanks, Reed. So for from Gainesville, Florida. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast with Dave Thompson uh, from WZ. And thank you, as always, to Kevin Tran, our very busy producer. Again, everybody stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more Crime Science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Ellis Prevention Research Council.